Good morning, ladies. We're going to get started here. We are live on Facebook, and I can see myself on my phone here, which is very interesting, but hi, everybody who's out there. And um, today we had a little snafu with the website not being downloaded, so hopefully people got the live link, and if not, um, you can share that. We're going we're gonna to share it. Oh, really? Okay, so um, we'll get the recorded out as soon as possible for people who can't get it. If you could let people know, that'd be great. So today we are continuing on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are looking at Matthew 5, 21 through 30. And the top of your outline should say the heart of the matter, and it should be yellow if you're here with us. I printed on yellow paper so we can keep track of things. Um, today we are looking at anger, murder, lust, and adultery, so all the easy stuff. Um, last week someone said, if they come back, it'll be a miracle, but here you are, and good, so thank you for coming. Let's start out with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for tough lessons that we need to hear. Thank you for being with us, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit would be with us as we, as we learn this and um, figure out what, what we need to do and, and how your word needs to move us today. And I pray that you would be with me as I teach, and I pray that you would be here um, just helping everybody learn and um, figure out and just encouraging one another, Lord. Thank you for today. Amen. So if you would open up to Matthew 5, I want to show you something here real quick because the next two weeks we're going to be looking at um, some of these topics and you're going to see a pattern here. So once you get to Matthew 5, just look at the, um, the bold print. Mine says murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, and love for your enemies. And like I said, today we're going to be doing murder and adultery, and then next week um, Marsha's got the, the next four. But each one of these, if you'll notice, starts with, you have, heard it, you have heard it was said, and then Jesus says, but I tell you. So what's happening is he's setting up a pattern to say, this is what you've been taught, but I'm going to deepen what has been taught to you. And so that's what we're looking at in each, um, each heading here. And I labeled this the heart of the matter because Jesus really, through this whole, this whole next two weeks that we have and what I'm teaching today, what Marsh is teaching, is that he's really deepening the law. He said he's not going to abolish it. And he doesn't abolish it, but he deepens it. There's a, a sense of deeping and helping us understand what the spirit of the law means. Okay, and so um, when I talk about the heart of the matter, that's because we're looking at those secret places where we need to look at ourselves and Jesus wants us to um, clean the inside of our cup, so to speak, right? What we talked about last week. So let's get started here. I am going to read in your outlines, if you're following along, the letter of the law. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 21. And it says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So, your outlines are, you shall not murder, right? It's the sixth commandment uh, found in Exodus 20, 13, and that's the letter of the law. And Jesus is taking nothing away from the letter of the law. So, I, I, I put a verse there, Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So, with the understanding of that, and as you think about do not murder, why do you think it would be so? Why not murder? Because God values life. He's the creator of life. 
I read something that said, murder is the assault of another image bearer of God that snuffs out the life given by God, which exalts the murderer to the place of God as the taker of life. And that was from Austin, Austin Hellman. So I want you to be thinking about that today. Continue to think about the image. We we're created in the image of God and why murder would be um, not okay. And then let her be there. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. And judgment here refers to the courts of the day and then ultimately God's, God's judgment, right, of the situation. And the Pharisees' standard there, um, letter C, is what the Pharisees did is they restricted the law, particularly in these two parts. Last week, Marcia talked about how they added on to the law, but when it was convenient for them, they restricted the law. And next week, she'll talk more about how they expanded the law with divorce and that, but today we're focusing on how they restricted the law. So when it came to murder, they thought, took it as we are talking about behavior only, like an external performance. I have not murdered people, therefore I am righteous. You know, so, but we know that the law is not just about an external performance, and Jesus is talking about that specifically today. Not murdering someone doesn't mean I'm treating people well. God's command, or Jesus' commandment, love God, love others. So if Jesus were to come to me today and say, Michelle, how are you doing with loving others? And I were to respond simply by saying, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Obviously not, right? That's not treating people well. So, and it's interesting how we're looking at murder and adultery because Jesus had just got done saying, in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What a shocker for them, right? Because the Pharisees were the best of the best. That was their job. That was everything that they knew. So how, Lord, am I going to be able to surpass that of what the righteous, you know, the righteous Pharisees do? What does that mean? You know, what does that mean for us? And I find it interesting that when you think of all the Ten Commandments, you know, keep holy the Sabbath, don't take the Lord's name in vain, no idols, honor your mother and father, you might think, okay, I've broken those, but murder and adultery, I'm good. I've got that, right? I haven't murdered anybody and I haven't slept with anybody else's husband. So I'm good. But Jesus says, no, we're going to go deeper than those. We're going to go deeper than that. It's not just external. So I want you to think about, I want you to think about anger. I want you to think about how the Pharisees treated certain people, how they treated lepers, how they treated women, how they treated sinners, and they thought Jesus should not be around the sinners, how they treated Samaritans and things like that. And I want you to also think about their anger towards them and what that might have looked like. But also, we need to look at our anger towards other people. And you think about our situation today. Anger towards our politicians who are making decisions. Anger towards Trump. Anger towards the election. Anger towards Biden. Whatever it might be for you, it's very relatable right now that we're talking about anger because anger is just all over the place. Okay, so after Jesus says, you know the letter of the law, he's now going to say the spirit of the law. So let's look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay. Again, another shocker. Because Jesus, we're, we're looking at this after the resurrection. We know who Jesus is. We know he has the authority. But for them, for the disciples and who he was talking to, it must have been like, 
well, you say it, but our leaders are the Pharisees. That's who we look up to. It must have been quite a shocker. And if you flip over two chapters, after the Sermon on Mount, at the very end, 728, it reads, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and they're referring to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You know, so... Here we go, him starting his ministry and saying, this is how it is. This is God's will for my people. This is how I want them to be. This is what kingdom citizenship looks like, okay? Anger with a brother is subject to judgment as murder, okay? And, and um, what's interesting here, and I think it's really a beautiful picture if you think about it, God had Moses go on top of what to get the Ten Commandments? The mountain. And he instructed the law. And now God is coming back on the mountainside again. The beginning of the Beatitudes there talks about how Jesus is on the mountainside. And he's saying, this is what was meant by it. We need to get deeper. You've been taught wrong. You've been misled. It's time to clean the inside of your cups. That's what I'm here for. So he is teaching the true understanding of the law. He sets a higher standard. In verse 22, who does it say is liable? Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now I look at that and I think, okay, Pharisees, I can see how you kind of restricted the law. It was easier when it was just murder, right? Because I can control that external part of me, but when you say anger with a brother, this is hard. This just got really hard, okay? And obviously, um, with what's going on here in our world and thinking about, how, thinking just about your day-to-day -day and, and how you are angry with people or not angry with people or what your motives are behind your anger and things like that, it, it's a big like, whew, okay. Anger is subject to the same kind of judgment that murder is. In letter B there, it says, The Lord looks at the things that take place in our heart. And look at this verse. This is 1 Samuel 16-7, through 7, and that's when David was about to be anointed, right? And God says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's why last week when Marcia went over those seven woes of the Pharisees, when he would, God or Jesus was just speaking out to him, being like, all they do is put on these heavy burdens onto you, but they don't do it themselves. They're all about um, keeping the letter of the law with tithing from their garden, but they don't think about justice and mercy and, and things like that. Or, or when um, he calls them hypocrites. You know, they're not doing it inside, and he knows the inside. It's all just for, for show, right? For men to see and, and lift them up. And, and then um, at the end there, he says, the inside of your cup is dirty. The outside is clean. The inside is dirty. And I feel like Jesus really is saying here, let's deal with the dirt. Let's deal with the dirt because I want you to have life and I want you to have it abundant. And that means squelching those things like anger that lead to death and sin. In Matthew 15, 19, it says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Now, if that's what comes from the heart, 
That's why God wants to deal with it, right? We can put up a pretty good show, but you know. You know what your thoughts are. You know what you know, the private things are that are going on. And in your book, the John Stott book, if you have it, you can open it with me. I'll read through it, so if you don't have it, not to panic. But it says, and I love this title, What's Wrong with Private Sins? Let's just take a minute and try to think, what, what's wrong with private sins? Right. First off, there just are no private sins. God sees everything. He wants to deal with the heart. That's why he came to talk about this, to deepen the law for them. Anything else? Oh, good. If we're not hiding, or if we are hiding, then we're not bearing burdens with other people. We're not being transparent, helping each other out. I also was thinking, especially when it comes to you know, this murder is that murder doesn't just start with murder. And the murder that we're talking about is not self-defense, right? We're talking about planned out murder. So it starts with angry thoughts. So if we're just sweeping all these things under the rug, it could come to a boiling point, right? Where, you know, and, and next Jesus is going to talk about even having contempt for people, calling them foolish and stupid and idiot. So it starts, you know, like something you can maybe sweep away, but that's not what you want to do, right? And then also, if you're hiding in, you're kind of putting your head into the sand of your anger situation, then the Holy Spirit's not going to be able to work. You're kind of stifling that. It's better for you to take seriously the private sins just because people can't see them. Like Linda said, God can see them. And I don't, I don't want you to think of this as God being like, well, you're angry and I'm giving judgment on you. I really, truly believe it's him saying, we're dealing with a heart issue. I'm that close to you. Let me work within you. Let the Holy Spirit come alongside you and work with that because all that anger leads to death. And I want, I feel like he's saying, I want the insides to match the outsides so people know that you're mine and they'll glorify my name. You know, we're in this kingdom work together. So Jesus points to the heart of the matter, and again, that's that anger with a brother breaks the spirit of the law. And at some point, when I'm studying through this, I'm thinking, okay, this is hard because it's very obvious then that I know that I've broken the spirit of the law, right? I think that we probably all have, if we're, if we're going to be honest. But at some point, do you say, well, all anger isn't bad, Right? How do we know that all anger isn't bad? What in scripture would lead us? Right, so he cleared out the temple and um, he was angry then. Was God ever angry with the Israelites? Yes, he was angry with the Israelites. So there is something that we have to look at. Righteous anger versus human sinful anger. And after researching this more, I found a definition I thought was really good by um, Jamie and Moeller. And I don't think you need to write this all down, but I just want you to think about this and think about your own anger. Is this what your anger is, okay? He says, righteous anger, aroused by righteous motives in, re in response to persistent unrighteous acts of sin, which if carried out by proper means result in righteousness. Okay, so your righteous... Your anger is aroused by righteous motives, okay? 
of, because of unrighteous acts, and ultimately that anger is then righteous. Okay, And then it says it's birthed out of a love for God and those whom he protects. It has God's glory and man's dignity in mind. It has no self-serving agenda, rather the best interest of others, and is not quick-tempered but slow-burning, and it's only provoked by the Spirit in the presence of ongoing habitual sin. Now that's... That's not me when I'm on Facebook angry. That's not me when my husband has done something or my child has shut off the laundry midway through. Right? That's not me at a basketball game when a ref calls a bad call, my opinion. Right? So you just have to be real with yourself. Is the anger that you have love for God, keeping man's dignity in mind, not about self, you know? So you, you just have to be clear, and I don't know. I don't know what your anger is. But human anger is described as an anger that's aroused by my impure motives in response to a perceived wrongdoing. Sinful anger is rooted in a love for self and has my glory and praise at its heart. So there I wrote, righteous anger, unrighteous, righteous anger versus sinful anger. And the biggest takeaway from that is righteous anger and sinful anger is me-centered. It's about me not getting my way or perceived how I thought things should go. Then I'm angry with my brother. And in John or in James 1, 19 through 20 there, I wrote, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jesus is telling us this is the will, his God's will for this kingdom people. He's making sure it's very teaching. And I do think when you read this and you're like, okay, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and nowadays say, slow to Facebook, slow to Twitter, slow to email somebody, slow to text. And when you have anger and issues that come up, take it to God before taking it to the world. Right? Maybe even grab a journal if, if, you're, if you really struggle in this area and write down your issues. You know, and, and pray and read the Bible first before you send it out. And, and consider, is this revealing righteous anger that God would have? Or is this me just on a rant, things didn't go my way with you know, whatever it might be? I really think it's a good practice to slow down in all forms of communication. And then in 1 John 3.15, it says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So the question comes to mind, and I want you to think about your heart and your faith journey. In Jesus' words here, in his deepening of the law, has he in any way exposed some things you're thinking about in regard to your anger? Has anything made you think, I have some private sins. I might need to confess and mourn for what's going on. Or even, and this is what I did when I was studying this, is I'm thinking, what are my temptations? Where do I see myself getting angry? What came before it? You know, what leads me into those things? Because it's obviously important to God that our anger with a brother is not there. So I want to work on it. I know the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit helping us along too, but we also have our part. 
right? So sometimes in the heat of the moment, it is not easy to stop the anger to come through. But if you can sit down after and think about what triggered that and how can I go about it differently, I think it would be a good step in trying to help yourself. So, I said earlier, I believe that I have broken the spirit of the commandment, thou shalt not murder. I want to know, with the rhetorical, have you? And in number one of your um, Stott book, we're going to look at that and it says, what standard does Jesus use to determine right and wrong? Do you say perfect? The heart. the heart. He has a perfect standard. He's holy and just and all-knowing. And there's a theologian Barclay that says, Jesus forbids forever the anger that broads, the anger which will not forget, the anger which refuses to be pacified, and the anger which seeks revenge. Jesus is saying the law murder and anger with a brother and are both subject to judgment. He's saying it is serious and it goes deeper than external um, you know, performance. Okay, back to our text here. Jesus moves from anger with a brother and starts to talk about insults and contempt. So let's look at that real quick here. Um, the remaining part of verse 22, he says, Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is an Aramaic term that means like empty or stupid, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, if we look back into our um, Stott book here, number three, I'm going to read over the question. It says, Jesus warns against calling someone raka, meaning empty or stupid, or you fool. Why do you think insults such as these constitute murder in God's sight? How can this type of language towards somebody? What is it showing? What is it showing? Yes, devaluing as an image bearer. And if you're a person who is going to call somebody out, at some point you're thinking yourself a little bit higher than you ought, right? You're contempt. You're saying they're beneath consideration and, and I'm worth consideration, right? But we know that the only way we are righteous is through what? Jesus, our faith in Jesus. So how do we then call somebody out? How do we say, President Trump, you fool? How do we say you know, Biden, you fool. It's not, it's not okay. It's just not okay. It's contempt is what it is. And it starts with anger. It leads to words. And eventually, hopefully never, it leads to murder. That's why we deal with it. And Jesus says, let's deal with the heart right now because this is serious. And I think of it as serious. Okay, so... Do you guys agree that your words could give life to somebody, but they also could take someone's life? You know, in a sense of God-bearing image.
Okay, so Proverbs 12, 18 there on your outline says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Let's be the tongue of the wise. Let's make an effort to be the tongue of the wise. Colossians 3, 8. This is about now that we have a new nature, right? Because we have a new nature in Christ. This is Jesus describing what a kingdom citizenship looks like. You now must rid yourself of all such things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And then in Galatians 5, 14 through 15, it says this, and take note. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And I truly feel in today's day and age, that's happening. That spoke to me so clear, clearly when I read that. It's verse 15 of Galatians 5, and it's just, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. The same with our anger. There's judgment with that. There's, there's consequences to having anger with a brother. But if you notice, the next part of your text talks about reconciliation. And what do you think that means? Do you think it means that Jesus knows we do not have it all together, that we are but made of ashes, that he would talk about anger and then talk about reconciliation after that? He came because he knows we are a frame of ashes. Okay? So I want you to remember with all of this that it might be heaping on hurts or you're thinking about things or anger, you're thinking about someone that maybe you need to reconcile with or maybe you need to stop certain things that you're saying or thinking. But I want you to know that you're not alone and we're going to talk about it later. I don't want to just fire hose you here. This is not what this is about, okay? But we do need to think of it seriously because Jesus thinks about it seriously and it what marks his kingdom people and we're his kingdom people. So he says, so right away he moves into reconciliation. And you think, what did he said, said in the Beatitudes? Be peacemakers. You know, Jesus knows we're going to have the issues, but he wants us to move from those issues into reconciliation. He's going to describe here in um, 23 the seriousness of it. He says, therefore, this is Matthew 5, 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So, as starting with murder and now saying anger, he's even going next level. He's saying, do you notice the language where it says, if your brother has something against you. So it's not even necessarily that you might be angry. But if there was conflict that you were involved in, and you know, I mean, now you know, this is not, these verses aren't new, but we're thinking of it new. Um, we haven't maybe read this verse in the last three months, but um, you know now that anger leads to death, that anger is considered judgment. And as a fellow brother in Christ, you don't want to leave somebody angry, even if they're angry at you, because you care about them, Right? You care that they not sit there and be angry and broad on that with you. So he's saying, go take care of it quickly. And I see that if you notice there, he says, um, even leave me waiting. Your reconciliation with someone is above your religious duty. It's that important to me. 
and do it quickly. And you think about Paul in Romans 12 saying, um, as it is possible and depends on you, peace with everybody. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Extend graces as you have been extended to you. God will wait. He wants your relationships reconciled. It's of that important. And then he goes deeper still in the next paragraph when he talks about settling matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now he's saying... Even if it's not a brother, it's your adversary. It's someone that, you know, you're not even, maybe not even a Christian. Don't leave it in the hands of the judge. Don't let Satan get a foothold on any of it. Don't let it get worse. Take care of it. So when we look at um, our book here again, let's go back to question five. I want to answer this together. It says, what do verses 23 to 26 teach us about broken relationships? What is God saying about broken relationships? Fix it. Fix it. Do it quickly. It's important to God. If the second commandment that Jesus, you know, the greatest commandment is love your neighbor, it's serious. You know, broken relationships are serious. And we need to take care of it. And why then in number six there, he says, why is Jesus concerned that reconciliation and apologies be made quickly? Right, so they don't fester. It doesn't come into something worse. And that you can get back to worship. Okay, so do you need to reconcile with anyone? God's will is for us to be peacemakers. I want you to be thinking about that too. You know, um, maybe not in this moment, but if, if there's somebody, if there's something, it's important to think about later, you know, after the study. Pray about these things. Go back and read the Bible. Okay, so now we're going to transition to lust and adultery. So more private sins. Same type of thing here that we're going into is what, um, what is the letter of law? What is the spirit of the law? So let's read. Let's go to Matthew 27. It says, you have heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. So in your outline there, um, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment, Exodus 20 through 14. And that is the letter of the law, an external performance that the Pharisees thought they were good at. You know, that's where it ended. They did not actually commit the act, so they were fine. But here Jesus, again, getting to the heart of the matter, getting to the spirit of the law, says... But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The same as anger. Anger can lead to murder. Lust leads to adultery. They're all subject to judgment, okay? But lustfully is a key word here because you know in our day and age, you're on the internet, all of a sudden a half-naked man comes up with a six-pack and... Uh, a shadow, whatever. He is, you can't help it. You've seen it. You've looked. But the key here is lustfully. So is my heart going to rest on that? Am I going to wish that my husband looked like that? Am I going to want that? Am I going to be um, aroused by that? You know, that's where you have to determine what's happening. 
but I want you to see that it's lustfully because some things we just see because we see, right? So again, we have a higher standard to look at the matters of the heart. It, it matters where your minds and thoughts are resting. And in James 1, 14 through 15, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, bring forth death. When you think about adultery in the Bible, what is the one situation you think of? Who had that? David and Bathsheba. So do you remember the story where David went out maybe to just get some fresh air on top of the roof and he saw Bathsheba? At that point, the commentaries say there wasn't, that's not sin. He just looked and there she was. But what did he do that led him to the adultery? He looked again. He looked again. And he lingered and he let his mind rest on that. Right? So right there as to what Jesus is saying is, there was the adultery. You know, there's where we, there's where something went wrong there. Okay, and then you know he, it, it literally led to death, right? So that's an example of that. And an example on the more further is Job 31, 1 through 12. I'm not going to go over that because I don't feel that we have time to do that. But that is where if you are in a situation where you have problem with lustful type things, Job there is talking about he makes a covenant with his eyes not to look at somebody. And then it breaks it out very nicely about that covenant. So if that's a situation and you need to do further study on, I would say write down Job 31, 1 through 12. So with all of this, the biggest thing that came to my head is I, don't, I might be um, too old or too young, I don't know, depending. So <laughs> we have a broad range here, don't we? But do you guys remember the song that said, be careful little eyes what you see? That's exactly what I think of with this. Be careful little eyes what you see. You know, because a look can lead to desire depending on your temptation. And I don't know what tempts you. You know, you don't know what tempts me, but God knows. So we need to look at those things seriously and figure out, um, again, what are my things? So Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, and he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Is Jesus literal here? No, he's not. And some people used to think that he was. But seriously, think about it. If I were to have a lust problem in looking at something and I were to take out my eye, would my lust problem go away? No, I'd use the other eye, or maybe it'd be then a smell that would entice me that I would think, you know? So it, it's not literal, but it, it does tell us something. So what is being stated here? If you think about it, what, what do you think when, when you read that? Serious, the seriousness of it, that it might take sacrifice to be obedient. If something in your life is causing you to stumble, you might need to get very uncomfortable in putting it away right? I was talking to James about this and joking. He must have listened to something I said once because he's like, well, what about your Amish novels? <laughs> 
And I was like, oh my gosh, you're like spying on me. But, but if that's it for me, if that's what tempts me, then I need to take that seriously, right? Because if I'm reading an Avish novel and I'm like, I want that kind of romance, or I don't know what would come with that. I, I don't really honestly feel that's my temptation, but, you know, it could be. Hallmark movies, different movies that come up, you know? And um, what was that? Right. Yes. Right, there are worse than Hallmark, definitely. But if we're going to be tempted... And we know what our temptations are. We cannot sit in front of those images and just, Holy Spirit, help me while I watch this. You know, that is not going to work. That is not me doing my part. Okay? And if it is igniting passion in you that is not geared towards your husband, then check yourself. Right? You need to check yourself. The second thing that it, it is saying, Jesus is, is saying is that the righteousness of God, his will for, for you and for me, um, might need to put earthly things away. I want it to be so important that you would put earthly things away. And then um, after reading Scott McKnight, he talks about having like an um, accountability partner. So if this is your problem, to confess with another Christian to have an accountability partner. If it's a, a, re- a, a real problem, then it can't be solved beyond that. No shame in therapy, right? You might need some help. You might need that. Bible reading, prayer, fasting, and then he says, as a general statement for all of us, a steady diet of the inflow of God's grace can be transformative for plucking out an eye and cutting off a hand. So keeping yourself at church, keeping yourself singing and listening to worship you know, music, listening to sermons and podcasts, coming to Bible study, attending conferences that are Christian-based. So more of that is coming in than of the world coming in at you, right? They'll set you up for better success. So the law tells you behavior. That's when they talk about the law was weak in that it didn't change you from the inside out. It just restricted and you knew. You could hold up a mirror and say, wow, I have broken this, you know? So um, Jesus explains, you know, what it means to break murder, what it means to break the law of adultery, the spirit of the law. And in ways, yes, we all have broken it in some way. You know, whatever that is for you, that's private. But um, when I think about the things that I've done, especially in light of learning this and studying it, it's painful to think about. Like, man, you know, here's one more thing that I'm thinking about. And, and as much as it pains me, I know from the Beatitudes, I know from his word that if I mourn, he's faithful to comfort me, right? That I mourn for my sin, he's faithful to comfort me, and together we can get through this. I do my part, and he'll do his part. He will carry out me to the completion that he thought I ought to be, right? So we have hope in that, and it's huge hope. And I'm thankful to God's word that he clearly defines, Jesus clearly defines, he comes to the mountain again to say, this is what I meant it has been it has been misconstrued. This is what I meant. It's clear expectations. There's no second guessing. I'm glad he came to tell us this. So together we can work on the inside. And that you're here today. You know, we're, we're thinking about this and we're going to think about it when we leave is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness and he says we'll be filled. So continue to go back into the word and, and how can I grow in faith and maturity? 
and I'm going to have to seriously look at anger. I'm going to have to seriously look at lust. It may not be murder and adultery for me in the external performance, but there's other things. Peeling back those layers of figuring out how can I grow in my faith? How can, how can God shine a light on the inside of my cup and, and one day it'll be clean? You know, let's slowly work at etching it off. In Romans 10.3, so we started this lesson. I'm going to just go back a minute. We started the lesson for saying, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It says in Romans 10.3 that they, meaning the Pharisees, sought to establish their own righteousness by external performance, but they did not accept the righteousness of God. So how then are we going to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? How are we going to do it? We've already discussed that we've probably broken the letter of the law, so how are we going to do it? Exactly, accept the righteousness in Christ. That's how we're going to do it. And I feel like he's letting them know, like, this is the expectation. I know you're not meeting it. He's setting up to say, you need me. You know? And then if you think about later on, in John 16, I'm skipping a little bit. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm skipping down a little bit because I really, when I was studying this, it came to my head when Jesus said to um, his disciples, I need to leave. It's better that I leave. So you have the comforter and the Holy Spirit that can lead you to the spirit of truth. Right? And it kind of is like reading the expectation, oh yes, I do need you. I do need the Holy Spirit. I do need to surrender to this because I haven't got this all worked out. I'll do my part and Lord, you're faithful to do your part. And we are not alone. That's the biggest thing. We are not alone. But it doesn't mean we just sit there in our sin and not try to help ourselves as well, right? We need to work together. We need to surrender. We need to yield. So Romans 8, 1 through 16. Let's turn there and read that over. I might not go all the way through 16, but here we are, Romans 8, 1 through 16. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful men in order that righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. And do not, and who do not live according to the spirit, that's us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but live according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit des desires. So let's, let's just talk about that portion for a minute. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty. He was sinless. He fulfilled the law in his sinlessness. He has no debt. He is able to pay ours, right? And the requirements of the law are met in us by God. Not by us, but by God. 
We have to keep in step with the Spirit. The person of Jesus is living in us, and if you really think about the kingdom inside of you, it's incredible. Really think about it and really live like it. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have that power living inside you, and he enables us to live according to the law as we surrender. So can my anger with my brothers get better? Yes. Yes, it can. There is hope for that. And we go on Romans 3, 21, 28 on your outline. That's the righteousness from God comes through faith. We talked about that today. But it's a reminder that that's where the righteousness comes from. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that is, God made him who had no sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So are we, the final question here, are we able to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? In Christ, absolutely. So let's hang our hats on that. And let's think about our triggers this week. Let's think about where we're anger and then go back and look at what occurred it and see what we can do and pray about it. The same thing for lust. If you looked at something too long and your mind sat upon it, go back and say, what can I do to avoid that situation? Okay, let's end in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for being very clear on what the expectation is and also being a God who knows that we are made of a frame of ashes and that you came and you left, and you sent the helper in the Holy Spirit, and that he is with us now. And I pray that you would help us to surrender and yield ourselves to that. We want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's why we're here. That's why we're in your word. Please, Lord, have mercy on us, and help us to do what is right, and help us to know our triggers, and work with you, so that you can clean our insides, to match our outsides, and people may know it's all because of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um.